0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life podcast. I hope everybody's having a beautiful day. I hope the sun is shining, the birds are singing, the wind is at your back. I have an incredible topic and an incredible show and an incredible guest for you today. When you listen to my voice and you hear the words translational regenerative medicine, what do you think? When I think about it and the person with whom we're going to learn more about it, we're going to investigate that It is the bridge between groundbreaking scientific discoveries and real-world applications that have the potential to transform healthcare forever. It represents the journey from laboratory innovation to practical solutions, where scientific insights are harnessed to heal and regenerate tissues, organs, and ultimately lives. It's a fascinating area, and we are going to learn much more about it today with my guest, the very one the one and only Elle Eden. She's the CSO of BioMamir, CEO of Iden AI, and we're gonna get into this world of, of what she's up to and how she got here. Elle, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? I'm great, thank you for having me. It's, it's a good day. It's a beautiful day. And we're on the cusp of real revolutions in healthcare. And I was hopeful that maybe you could fill in a little bit of background about who you are and where you got to be today absolutely um so i'm originally swedish
1: um i went to university in linköping at uh, linköping university and mm. um, i had a stint at uh, the karolinska institute in stockholm and i got my phd from Uppsala university which is um very close to stockholm it's um one of the oldest uh, institutions in the world um and I, I really love my time there, so I, I'm always spawning a bit about it. Um, yeah, I started out in genetics and uh, worked sort of on the um, interface between industry and, and academia there. I, I was working on a grant that was um, co-sponsored by Pharma. Uh, and from there, I, I, I already then knew that I wanted to work in regenerative medicine. I had my sight set on on uh, medical device specifically within regenerative medicine. Uh, it just happens to be that my my boss at the time um, had a former a former coworker or, or uh, someone who used to be um, to work with him at um, Harvard when he was there. So he was in the same city. So he kind of scooted me over there. Uh, and that's how I started working in, in medical device and, and re-enter medicine. And during that during that time, uh, I, I worked in that group for almost a decade and I picked up a degree in chemistry during that. So that, that was a lot of fun. Um, I, I always wanted to do things on the industrial side. I wanted to build something big that impacted a lot of people. And it's really hard to do that in academia. Uh, especially when you have, we always work in a very large um, ecosystem, a lot of groups collaborating on everything, uh, which is great for, for innovation. Uh, what's not so great with that is uh, IP assignment. It becomes very messy, uh, especially as we were working across um, borders and um, different universities have different policies, mm-hmm. and sometimes you get in. Uh, in this strange uh, situation where one country assigns the rights to the inventor and one country assigns the rights to the university um so we wanted to get away from that uh, and that's the um, that is how we spawned Biomere, which is um a medical device startup uh but it, it specifically we work in what we call like the squishy part of mm-hmm. medical yeah. device and um, so permanent implantable materials, um, hydrogels specifically that we use as wound fillers. And uh, we have a product that's now going through all of the regulatory work needed to bring it to market. That's mainly focused on both sealing um, a wound, but also allowing it to heal undisturbed. Traditional methods have constant constant intervention from medical health practitioners our product is a one and done sort of thing where you fill the wound and it gets to be left in place and it heals over time um and uh the big thing that we're selling is that we do this without scarring so there are some other products on the market that have the same sort of approach to to wound healing that fills wounds and and allows them to heal without uh, intervention from nursing staff or physicians but we we have really good results and we can do this without these wound scarring so yeah that's that's where i'm from and that's what i do
0: it's an amazing journey i love i love the idea that you can Cross over from academia into the world of startups, because I think you get the best of both worlds that way. You really have this foundation of learning, and then you get to take that learning and apply it in real time to a field that's just beginning to emerge in ways that we're just beginning to really get our hands around. But I'm curious, when you talk about healing of the wound, is this something that someone would get in surgery, or is it something somebody would get in combat, or is it both? Does it work in both particular areas? Um, the the first product that we're working with, um, it had a
1: collagen is mm-hmm. often the main component in materials like this. We also have a proprietary material that, goes, that I can't t- talk too much no, about. Okay. The magic sauce, you know. <laughs> right. um, however, uh, collagen uh, demands cold chain shipping, mm-hmm. uh, which means that it isn't very good for field applications. Um, it's very hard for a medic to carry around something that needs to be kept at four degrees celsius right yeah. um and also the when you apply our current product you need to properly properly the the wound which is like clear away any any damage of that tissue and clear out any any dirt from the wound um, that's very hard to do in the field uh, so the first product will be going into the hands of uh, physicians uh, both surgeons and, uh, general practitioners, emergency room, uh, physicians, um, our, our main goal is to get this into, um, the hands of physicians who treat hard to heal wounds, as we call them. So these mm. are wounds that have chronic inflammation and either takes in the range of nine to 12 months to heal. And some of these would never heal. Uh, These would be pressure ulcers or tunneling wounds or diabetic ulcers. However, the underlying technology, the the technology that brings down anti scarring uh, to this product uh, doesn't really have the same constraints when it comes to uh, storage and shipping. So we are developing a second generation product uh, that will have a lower price point uh, and will be possible to to deploy in the field. We're both looking at getting this into the hands of uh, military medics. We think that there's a um, great use case there. Um, but I would also love to see this in the hands of EMTs. Um, yeah. uh, the the second-generation material also, sometimes you have a really gruesome wound, right? Uh, especially when we're to- talking trauma. Um, and inflammation tends to be bad I, I, inflammation leads to shock inflammation leads to um, poor, poor healing outcomes very severe scarring um, and and yeah further damage to tissue so we're hoping to we're hoping to help, help avoid that and the second this second generation material um, should be possible to apply on the scene and then stabilize the patient for long enough that a physician or surgeon can evaluate the wound and then go in and excavate that and and repair it um, in a surgical theater if needed. So that's both. but in the short in the short term, it's definitely a thing we want to see in the hands of physicians.
0: it's It's wonderful to me. it's it's mind-blowing to think about all the things that's that you're learning in the process of it. Not only, are you helping science and the medical industry move forward by developing these technologies? But it seems there's a crossover too. Are there some things that you've learned while, while implementing this technology that you didn't think you would learn? Like, it seems like there's a lot going on there.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, coming from academia, our constraints are very different, uh, very different, and, and they get to be a little bit strange um, in academia. We're cheap, but we're not. Um, we're fine with something being a very expensive um, uh, treatment per unit because we we evaluate this in 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 batches of like say three to ten maybe. Um, which means you, you can easily afford ten thousand bucks for a treatment if you're only doing three three animals or three patients. Like ten thousand is is a very small amount for a grant, right? Um, however, uh, if we're talking about emergency emergency room visits, right? right. Um, that's entirely unfeasible. Um, so we've seen a lot. We, we, we didn't know this coming into this. It's one of the reasons why we were swapping over because we. There's an incentive to push the envelope on high tech when in academia, but I have a little bit of a hard time grasping what the point is if your high tech solution comes with a price tag that's so high that it's never going to be implemented, never going to see patients outside of your pilot uh, clinical trial. Um, So that's one of the things, one of the main things we've really been working on and that we've learned a lot about, like what the constraints are when you go to that market, what people are willing to pay for, what they're not willing to pay for. And some of the differences between we're mainly focused on the Canadian and U.S. market, just yes, because of where we are located right now. We eventually want to go global, and we have we have our sights set on the EU and uh, Asia as well, particularly India. We we really want to break in there because it's a it's a little bit of a walled garden. It's a very hard market to break into, uh, but it's also a very undeserved market. So. I think yeah a lot of a lot of learnings there in in what is feasible and what is not and and that's uh informed how we design materials um what more uh we've learned a lot about wound healing and how how physicians look at wound healing because mm-hmm. our, our first year was all hunting down physicians that deals mm-hmm. with the sort of wounds we want to treat, right? Like these, these really tricky, nasty wounds that honestly, they're extremely common uh, we're talking about like somewhere between 20 percent to 50 percent of the total global population will have wounds like this at some point in their lifetime, um, but there's very little common knowledge about it, right? Um, so, so we had to We had to recruit really good medical advisors, which we've managed. We have some wonderful people here in Calgary working with us on that. Uh, We've also been in a program called Creative Destruction Lab, um, which we graduated um, this last summer. And through that, we've also gotten a lot of contacts with physicians and surgeons, um, mainly in Canada, but also in the US. We've definitely been surprised by some things. Um, understanding who's an early adopter and who isn't. Um, honestly, uh, wound care uh, practitioners, like wound care uh, physicians and surgeons, have been in. They've been extremely keen on new solutions. I think because the, mm-hmm. the current standard of care is. Right. Um. It causes a lot of strain. It causes a lot of pain, um, and some of the people we thought were going to be easy to convince because them. Um, we were assuming that plastics, so plastic surgery, uh, reconstructive surgery, would be a good entry point because these are people who are really keen on on building a name for themselves and having the latest and greatest technology. However, um, I would say the population of doctors in that field is so extremely, extremely heterogeneous, like it's so different doctor to doctor in how they approach uh, medicine, who they want to treat, what volumes they're looking at, what what price um, class they come in at. They. So we've definitely gone away from that. I think that I think our technology is really good for those people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're a very difficult market to go to first, um, because you really, you, you basically need to sell to each individual in that case. You you need to convince every single person, and you never know going into a room whether or not they will be super gung ho on it or or entirely averse to it. Uh, so it's um, it feels like much more of a gamble. And I did. not you were asking about learnings. I never thought that that would, would be the case. I didn't think that what we sort of see as the sort of workhorse medicine, right, like the, the ones that do the same thing every day and do massive volumes, I didn't think those were going to be the ones that were easiest to sell on new technology. But really, because, the, because there are so many problems with the current standard of care, they have been extremely receptive. I don't think I've have, had a single conversation with a wound care physician or wound care nurse, um, which hasn't come back with, when can we put this in our hands? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, that's been amazing, honestly amazing. It's been a lot of fun.
0: It's fascinating to me to get to hear, I see patterns developing. You know, I, I see this pattern of you having this technology and helping wounds heal. And it also seems while that is happening, you're also creating relationships and having them heal. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're almost side by side in that getting this technology to work and, and help wounds heal. You have to first help the relationships between healthcare and people heal. Like it's kind of synonymous in a way, right? <laughs> no,
1: definitely. Um, there's um, startups are a unique space yeah. in that also, right? um both me and fiona who's my wife and co-founder and we published some um high profile papers in the last few years in in the field of regenerative medicine um and my wife more than me is a name in the space um as well as i both of my former supervisors are very uh, large names in the space, so like you get a little bit of, of spillover fame from that. Um, but it because of the issues I was uh, mentioning earlier about that a cutting edge of yeah. technology and what's actually sellable, um, you really started over from scratch in in those relationships, right? Uh, if I went to a conference when I was in academia, um, it's enough to have the names on the poster right. for people to want to talk to me and and um we did get Im- invitations to talk at some of the biggest um conferences in in regenerative medicine in the world to to be actual speakers of that which is amazing and going to industry um there is a lack of communication between those two ecosystems um yeah. you're you're either Quite thorough, quite set in the academic um, compartment, or you're quite set in that in the industrial compartment. and it, it those two systems talk less than you would expect them to. <laughs> um, and I, honestly, I'm 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 um, very privileged in this because the um, the groups I come out of are more professionalized or more industrialized than most. Like they they have goals that are really to make um usable solutions to make right. things that are viable as as actual medical devices are, are on the market um and still the um, the knowledge on the industry side of what is the latest and greatest in academia um is somewhat lacking um so it's something we, we're trying to to help sort help help fix um but it takes time, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's a beautiful relationship. And I think it speaks to the idea that it's not either or, it's both and. And when you can merge the great people in academia with the people that are starting up and real-world applications, I think that that's when you begin to see real wounds start to heal. And we start moving forward in ways that we didn't know of before.
1: Yeah. Um, I will see some of these. Uh, we were actually talking... So uh, to, uh, for everyone except George, who doesn't know, we, we had a talk about this before, um, about um, what the word regenerative medicine tends to imply. And and to a lot of people who read about it in, in articles or like popular science articles or even coverage in, in major publications like Nature, they do their sort of weekly coverage of, of up and coming things. Um, regenerative medicine has become almost synonymous with cell therapies, um, which is interesting. I, I think there's a lot of promise in, in cell therapies, and and I have done some work in in that field and in that direction of regenerative medicine. However, we're very that technology is very very young, uh, and there the, is some the constraints on the technology that will mean that. There is a minimum price tag on anything like that, right. uh, because you need individual sterile handling and culture of, of cells going to any given patient. Right? Um, it's very hard to scale a process like that, especially when we're talking about the really cutting edge um, in indivi- uh, the, the big the big catch for now, right, uh, individualized medicine. Yeah. Um, and we have gotten far in individualized medicine when it comes to antibody therapies. So um, this can be things like HIV or, or viral therapies. It's uh, the main one is for cancers, but we've also seen some development there in, uh, or, um, in autoimmune disease. Um, but that's antibodies, right? Um, and individualized is still for a specific subtype of, of a disorder. So individualized here can still mean a hundred patients or a thousand patients. But when We're talking about individualized medicine and cell therapies. We're talking about one patient and we're talking about um, setting apart a part of a facility for a single patient for several weeks and having a dedicated technician uh, going in and, and taking care of, of these cultures. And that, of course, like we can only bring the price uh, down so far for something like that. Right. Um, I think we will get there. Like, I think we will get there where um, regenerative cell therapy and regenerative medicine is a, an absolutely gigantic part of medicine. But I think that that step is further away than a lot of pop science and a lot of news coverage sort of frames it. I think most scientists know that most people who work in academia in, in regenerative medicine knows this. Um, however, what we do, it's um, in material science and um, cell-free materials for regenerative medicine. Um, so instead of culturing cells in a dish, uh, we create materials that allow your own cells to thrive inside of them. So we're basically moving that from having that in a, in a sterile room to having that inside of your room. We're doing very similar things. We're taking your cells. We're expanding them in a healthy way uh, to replace your damaged tissue we don't need to take uh, when, when you do this for cell therapies right you often take a cell sample and then you expand that in the lab and then you put it back in right. we, we skip that step we do that directly <laughs> in the patient instead um which it strips away a lot of the costly steps in this and and that will allow us to reach a much larger uh, population much earlier And we've already seen revolutions in this field of regenerative medicine over the last, um, only since the mid nineties, we've seen a lot of this. I don't have that. I don't have the nice Mm -hmm. graphic that uh, Fiona tends to show, but we've had several generations of of these materials um, where we had the first generation that was just um, what was called biopolymers, so collagen or similar materials Mm. that we just used to fill a wound and that that was it and they they worked well and then someone had the bright idea to um, if this works well if we have a more normal tissue um that might work even better so second generation that came here with wound fillers um was decelerized tissue um which instead of of heavily processing a tissue from an animal to extract this biopolymer, collagen, um, you took the whole piece of tissue and you removed any any cells, which Mm -hmm. uh, minimizes risks for immune complications, and then you implant that. That was generation two. But either of these things come with a lot of risks and a lot of issues, mm-hmm. we were always concerned about transmission of disease from animals to humans, what's called sonotic disorders. Um, but then also, whenever you process tissue like that, you, you damage it, like it's, it's part of anything that's extracted, uh, and the body recognizes um, damaged tissues, and co- that causes inflammation. Um, We consider ourselves to be part of a a third generation of um, materials in regenerative medicine. Um, We make deliberately designed uh, biopolymers. Uh, And while, uh, as I said in the beginning of of this interview, uh, we are using collagen right now. Uh, We're also developing several uh, biopolymers. Uh, There are synthetic biopolymers that would act as a replacement for the collagen. Um which removes a lot of those issues. so and and the right now, the component in our material that isn't collagen is a synthetic um, a synthetic biomimetic polymer, as we call it. Mm. so a, a polymer that imitates um, the the biopolymers that your body produces. Um, so we we can get the benefits without the downsides mm-hmm. um, so yeah. We we really think that for the next 20 or so years, this will be the big movement in re medicine medicine um, because the need is so, so very large. Um, we're talking about the scale of, depending on, on which um, disorders you're looking for, somewhere between 20 billion wow. US up to 147 billion. And um, annually that could benefit from this technology which is absolutely and now we're only talking about uh, use of materials like this in in operating theaters and and clinics this is not looking at field use at all so mm-hmm. it's a it's a huge market but market size correlates to the pain that this that, that the problem causes, right? right. Like the, the market size here comes from um, the unfortunate state of things right now. The fact that we, the fact that we know that this is how many people needs need new solutions, is is rather sad. Like it's a, it's a rather yeah. heavy thing, right? Um, as yeah. so we we're trying to get there as fast as we can but we're still, we're still very small and mm-hmm. um, we've, uh, we've just opened a second fundraising round. So we, we closed our first one early this year and now we're raising money for this again. Um, and for the people who, I, I know that you have quite a diverse um, yeah. audience, for those who don't know startups, startups like ours uh, aren't really expected to make money uh very early in the process because um we have to comply with regulatory before we can do make sales so we need to raise many millions of dollars before we can make a single cent um which is a tricky place to be right like you can't you can't prove this as um as you're going just by Getting customers and like showing that here our customers want this thing, uh, we need to build. We need to build knowledge about the product, and and we need to um, recruit uh, key opinion leaders within the fields that we want to affect. And that is the big, the big work as a as a startup founder in in medicine in any field of medicine. If it's medical device or pharma, um, you really need to build this profile and you need to build a community um mm. that cares about the same things that you care mm-hmm. about because otherwise even if you can raise the money to get to market if there isn't if there isn't knowledge about what you're offering among the uh, among the users and among the customers then that's where it dies where well, it a, is a very strange place to being um also because This might be a, a, a long tangent, but um, in pharma, you do not like a, a, a pharma startup will either die very early on, like conceptualization stage. Basically, you cannot get strong enough um, evidence to get this approved. Um, and in that case, your company is gone, right? Uh, or you might be overtaken at some point a few years after your launch because someone comes up with something better. Um, But that's quite nice for investors because once you have lab evidence that this works well, uh, you can be relatively certain that you will get the approval. And when you get the approval, you will get sales because pharma um, works that way. Uh, It wouldn't get to the market unless there was evidence enough to push that to clinics, um, and also the organizations, like the investors on that side, uh, push those new drugs really hard. Uh, medical devices is very different. Um, in medical device, it's, it's still expensive to get it to market, but it's when we get to market, that's when we have to prove ourselves. Medical devices are never really uh, proven in the eyes of the, of the physician. Uh, or in the eyes of investors until you have hit really good numbers when it comes to returning revenue. Unless you make sales, um, you're, you're basically dead in the water. Like, that's the danger zone for medical devices, uh, which is quite, quite unique, um, I will say. It's very different from both um, startups that scale on revenue And it's quite different from from pharma startups
0: it's fascinating to think about and and i don't know i i had no idea about that and i'm sure a lot of people listening to this have no idea how that market works and it i think it sheds a lot of light on the regulations it sheds a lot of light on you can have a fantastic idea but it may die in the water and it never gets out there for people to to solve problems with
1: yeah but this is why we do so much work on on raising awareness about these things mm-hmm. and why, the ongoing thing. The thing we're always asked about and the thing that we're always working on is find more advocates who work mm-hmm. within the field, especially physicians. Sometimes I'm asked about like, do you, have you convinced the customers? But it's, for us, it's not necessarily customers we have to come in because uh, in our case, right. we're selling to hospitals, right. hospital systems, clinics, right? And um, the people who actually input the order in the system, the people who use this, they, it's the physicians. Um, so it's really, we, we need to get the people on the ground to really want this so that they can then do our sales for us, you know, so that mm-hmm. the the people who want to use this, um pushes their administration um to enable that um so we're we're trying to have a, a bit of a grassroots movement in that and honestly it's part of the reason why i'm on here i'm talking to yeah. you yeah. Um, to to get eyes on that and and have people understand that we are at the at the cusp of of a lot wound care really changing uh how it's done and who can be helped um, yeah i think we're very close to a major revolution in that and um, and i i would i would want to see these products everywhere in the world um and with this with this type of technology you can get there you can get to the point where the price point is low enough uh, that you can convince um, healthcare systems in, in parts of the world that doesn't have the same resources that we do in North America.
0: Um, so yeah, It's beautiful to me. I, in some ways, I see patterns and trends. You know, the same way you're moving from academia into the startup, so too are you moving from the, the top-down structure to the bottom-up structure. When you come directly and you start a community, especially a grassroots community, you're going directly to the people that are going to benefit most from it. Instead of trying to go through a, an added you know, an agency and sell it all the way down, you're going right to the people and saying, this is what we have. This is what we believe we can do. Here's the test. What do you guys think? Like that's I really like that model. And I hope that that trend continues in the world of healthcare. I think it's very beneficial.
1: Yeah, I, I think so too. I will say though, we're, we're not we we are not unique in that approach uh, as as startups um in in this space it is what you have to do um the the top-down structure that you're talking about is only really viable if you already have the network to push that to decision makers um but startups don't have that uh, unless you're unless you're a, a startup that's actually a, a you know spin out from a major right. corporate en- entity, you don't have that that mm-hmm. amount of reach. Uh, so you have to you have to create that reach yourself. And yeah, this is the, the, what we do and and it's interesting to see i was I was never really involved in the startup community before I started a company myself. um but Canada has an amazing. An amazing startup community. Like, the, um, it's very active. There's always events. There's, in the last two years, I don't think there's been a single week where I haven't had at least one. Most of the weeks, two events that I attend, uh, like outside of normal workouts, like evening events or uh, pitch events and and competitions and conferences. It's it's nonstop, and, and I think it's. That's really cool. It's really cool to be doing this during this period where there is so much movement and so much interest.
0: Yeah, it it reminds me of there's a a phrase that says collaboration leads to innovation. Mm -hmm. And it seems whether you're in the startup field or especially in the startup field, but maybe you could speak to that idea of collaboration and innovation.
1: Absolutely. Um, It actually, I think that goes a little bit... um, to something else, we have you and I have talked about in the past, which is about the intersection between different disciplines, um, um, not just not just medicine, but science in general. Now yeah. is becoming more data driven, um, and the traditional the traditional compartments in science and medicine um are working less and less well because to be able to utilize all of these amazing new tools we're developing on on the it and ai side you have to have expertise in those things as well and you have to build those things both by both with collaborations with groups who who are on the other side of things right if you come in from medicine and biology or in medicine, chemistry, whichever, um, you really need to find a way of, of integrating the, the other part of this. And I think it's important to both build knowledge as an individual in, in whatever the other side of that trench is. but you also need, of course, experts that come from the other side. I, I think we really need, we need people who are experts in AI and computing. Um, to, to, to inform themselves or get further education in the field of medicine so that they properly understand the implications of, of how they analyze data and so that they can be critically evaluate their own results. And I think that this is true from the other side as well. If you come right. from medicine, um, you can't just trust the other side to be doing it right when it comes to how they analyze data, because sometimes we have issues with translating what data actually actually means, right? Um, is a piece of data, primary data, or is it a proxy for something else? And that informs how we need to analyze it. But as, um, if these Every camps are entirely separated. Uh, we don't. We miss those things. We miss uh, the ability to uh, to find those issues and to evaluate the, the um, data in, in an appropriate way. So, I think we need to strengthen collaboration between those sides of yeah. things. Uh, but I also think that we need to uh, culture an atmosphere where it's okay to have um, people come out of the opposite camp. join groups or corporations uh, that are traditionally of the other one. So I I do think that uh, more medical device and pharma companies need to hire AI experts. And I think that more, um, say, platform companies, uh, drug uh, development companies that come in from that really have the technical expertise in AI need to bring in more pure biologists or, you know, uh, medical professionals to help them. Builder models, models and understand what the data actually means.
0: Yep. Yeah. Lydia is, is over here. First off, thanks, Lydia, for, for uh, putting some comments out there. She says, I love it. Collaboration leads to innovation. Would this technology support autoimmune diseases?
1: Um, definitely. Uh, so the question here, we, we talked about a lot of things right. and, and for the last 15 minutes, so we haven't really talked about my technology. No. Um, however... The um, the materials we're working with, these um, uh, biomimetics, they're really designed to interact with the immune system um, in, a, in a healthy way and shift the immune response from an aggressive, uh, fast um, restructuring um, strategy into a slower healthier type of uh, tissue repair um, so we go we're honestly trying to shift this away from traditional wound healing um, into having a scaffold that functions as a stand in for as long as it takes to heal and during that healing period it it doesn't really heal like traditional wound healing instead um, it functions as um, tissue repair, like your normal repair of healthy tissues, because like we're all made out of cells, right? Mm-hmm. All of us mm-hmm. Um that's turned over quite quickly. Um, epithelium and and uh, keratinized uh, tissue, which is what everything that you can see on me right now is that type of tissue. Uh, so my corneas are made out of that stuff and um, my hair is keratinized uh, tissue. Uh, the top layer of my skin is the same. Uh, that stuff is is turned over, some something between for every fourteen, after every thirtieth day or so. That's how long it takes to entirely replace those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we're using that uh, we, we we're using that uh, pathway uh, to get healthier tissue to replace damaged tissue. Um, but of course, the same. Thing goes for uh, autoimmune disease, uh, but because autoimmune disease is a shift of um, immune responses in the opposite direction, like in the direction that we are st- trying to stop. Um, and we we've um, had a lot of thoughts on how to approach um, autoimmune disorders uh, using using this family of technologies and. We will continue hunting that down however um the device classification for anything that um will be used to treat or immune because it's Mm -hmm. um we're talking about central systems and like blood circulation and these things um elevates it to a very high uh, regulatory standard anywhere in the world more or less all this ends up at the highest regulatory standard wherever you are in the world uh, which increases development costs. Um, so we want to leverage the, these first couple of uh, generations of these technologies uh, to start building revenue and use, then use that revenue uh, to push products that come in at higher classifications or might even be classified as pharmaceuticals rather than medical devices, or in this case, it's probably going to be called um, combination devices. Mm -hmm. they have to basically we end up having to comply with both uh, pharmaceutical regulation as well as medical device regulation and products like that come with a very high price tag i would say we're talking about the range of the very cheapest you can end up is probably around five million us and that's very unlikely most of these most of these will come in at 15 million us or more assuming that you already have the infrastructure to, to build them. That's, that's assuming that you already have a few (laughs) products under your belt and you know how to build these and you don't need a new lab or anything. We're still talking about the low tens of millions to develop a single product in, in that space. Um, but I, I think the technology has the same promises there as it has in, in regenerative medicine. Um, because we're talking about adjusting um, how the body's immune system functions, mm-hmm. and like bring that from a there, there, there is a thing I tend to note out about in in this <laughs> specific field, which is a lot of people talk about natural healing and all these things. Right, what they forget is that. Uh, modern medicine is a non-thing, uh, a non-existing thing on, on evolutionary timescales. Our immune systems and our repair systems uh, were evolved on a, on a timescale that's in the millions to tens of millions of years. Um, there, there's been some shifts on the, the scale of like hundreds of thousands of years, but that's, that's the quickest that we really see any large amounts of change, like when we see population level changes, it's seldom faster than that. A um, hundred thousand years ago, um, the the needs of the human body for repair were different from what they are today. You, you were unlikely to live past the age of 40, which means that repair after the age of 40 didn't have strong evolutionary pressures on, on them. But the other thing is you didn't have antibiotics, which means that Wound closure is insanely important. Like wound closure is more important than anything else uh, for, for a human being living in the Stone Age, right? Because otherwise you get infection and you die. Um, and that's where scar comes from. We work on we, we work on removing scar formation. Through, and and I can see a criticism leveraged against us, which is like we're going away from natural wound healing, and this is true. We are. I want to go away from natural wound healing because natural wound healing is not designed to to function in, in the best interest of a human being today. It's, it's designed to function in the best interest of a human being 100,000 years ago or maybe a million years ago. Um, these are no longer the same. We, we now have the ability to take care of each other to make sure that wounds are continuously rebandaged or cleaned. Um, we have antibiotics in case people get infections. Um, in the case of, of um, um, autoimmune disorders we have steroids to bring down immune responses. Yes. Um, so we really need to we need to find ways of um, curating the responses of the human immune system, to, to work well with modern medicine. We haven't really done this at this point. We're getting closer. Um, as I was talking about earlier, the, um, um, personalized medicine, especially in the um, antibody field, is very much working on this. It's looking at what goes wrong in immune response and how do we adjust this um, to make sure that faulty immune response doesn't kill people or cause Mm a suffering um yeah i think i think material science has a lot Mm -hmm. to offer there as well um and and so for the non-scientists there the reason why i'm talking about medical devices and um material science in immune therapies uh has to do with how we deliver immune therapies right now Uh, so And nanoparticle technology is well established now as a part of this. And the nanoparticles that we use to deliver active ingredients um, inform how these things function. Um, And how we design the materials and how we design particles uh, decide where in the body and what cells and where in the cells um, we're sending active ingredients, um, but there is an added step there that I think is very interesting, which is we know that the body reacts to surfaces and materials and chemical entities that aren't necessarily small molecules. They aren't pharmaceuticals in the traditional sense, um, but they still affect cell activity. They still um, affect uh, immune response. Um, so the same materials that we are now using to fill wounds with, in theory, you can make those into nanoparticles, in which case they can help create that same kind of, what we call tolerogenic um, behavior uh, on a, in the whole human system. Like, in, this would be delivered then, um, through your vascular system, through your blood. Uh, but that means that it, would, it will adjust your immune response Throughout your entire body, um, I I really think there's a big promise for for polymer uh, science and material science in that, and it is a that part of science, that part of medicine is also one of these. It's a baby, just like just like cell therapies. Um, it's honestly almost younger. Uh, we, we've seen some great advancements in that in the last. Um, few years or maybe the last decade Um, and some of that honestly comes from regulators becoming more um tolerant of, of those technologies we started with with nanoparticles mainly being um delivery technology for pharmaceuticals uh, but because we got them into the system through that, right? And now use the technology in, in different ways to help help treatments. Um,
0: yeah, it's it's almost like a a Trojan horse in a way. Like if you can introduce yeah. it now, all of a sudden you have this. It's already been in the system a little bit, and now there's all this promise for it. It's pretty amazing to think about. I I, n- I didn't know about any of that. I mean, it's. Regulatory frameworks extremely
1: right. complicated and right. obtuse. Um, they on sh- a <laughs> uh, 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 European Union is changing a lot of that lately, also. And and one of these things, none of us say out loud, but I'm gonna do it now. <laughs> which is it. like the, the constant thing you hear whenever you talk to regulatory consultants or other startup founders in the space, is that Europe is such a gigantic headache right now because, um. Uh, they're shifting so much regulation at once. Uh, it's and it is in exactly these things we're talking about this in cell therapy. Right. Um, uh, and it's in, in medical device and it's in pharma. It's mainly in medical device and, and cell therapies, I will say. Um, so it's hard to work in the European Union at the moment because there's a lot of uncertainties. I do think that that will be coming down in the next couple of years. And I think that we will probably come out of it better than we went in. I do think, in the end, uh, the regulators in Europe will create a framework that is um in everyone's best interest. Uh, but it's been a it's been a rocky five or six years, really. Uh, it's actually more than that now. I'm time runs faster with the older you get. Like the last yeah. decade, the last decade, which is the period where we have been working on this, and. Most of that time, honestly, we've been in, or a lot of that time, we've been in Europe. We started a lot of these projects when we were still in in Europe, and we did a lot of work there in academia, and we had collaborators in industry. And uh, it was um it was an exciting time. I'm I'm hoping that we will st- soon live in less exciting times.
0: <laughs> it's you know, there's a question that comes to mind in that you have an unusual perspective because you get to see all of this promise of what can be and actually developing these products that are making changes. But then you're up against these regulations that are sometimes very archaic. How do you balance that? That's a very good. That's one of these, like
1: really big questions when it comes to how we work and, and where we're at. Um, in some cases, this archaic framework works in our fashion, uh, sorry, in in our favor, um, because there's a lot of technologies uh, like the one I mentioned, right, that right. gets grandfathered in, and it's an actual term used by the FDA by a lot of regulators. More or less, we've had this thing on the market for a long time, um, and it doesn't really fit with the regulatory framework that we're now developing. Right. However, we will, be, we will basically uh, let that, uh, all the approval that wouldn't really be valid under the current regulation, uh, still stand because we know that it's safe and efficient because it's been on the market for 20 years, right? Or in some cases, 50 years. Right. Um, some of those things work in our favor, really. Um, our primary product, um, this uh, anti-scarring wound filler I've been talking about, um, we will take that to the market in the United States before we do in Canada, even though uh, the majority of our team I- are Canadian or live in Canada, uh, because they have they have a pathway to to use that part of the system. It's called a five ten K, and it uh, basically says that if you're similar enough to previous device that has been approved under a certain um, regulatory framework. You, as long as you can prove that it is safe, you can, you can bring it to market. Uh, and that vastly decreases uh, our costs. It makes it much easier to do product development. So in some cases, it's beneficial. But I was saying, um, then we have the other extreme of that, which is the European Union, um, where a lot of these changes that happened in the United States in the 90s are happening now, and they are larger, they're more sweeping, Europe has a more complicated frame, like regulatory framework to begin with, because it's younger, um, and it's less interconnected. Um, And it's really, it, it, it ends up affecting this a lot. And the way it's affecting it is that Europe will be a much later market for us. We will have to go to market in the places that already have frameworks in place that allows us to go to market and, um, when we're in at the mar- uh, on the market in one place uh, we can build a huge amount of data on safety and efficacy and we can leverage that when we go to more complicated mm-hmm. regulatory environments and yeah I, I hope that that answers that question
0: yeah i think so it's 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 a, it's a whole other dimension that if you're not involved in the field or you understand like you know it takes a while to wrap your mind around it but i i often wondered about that like it seems like a very difficult Maybe not difficult, but a unique position to be in, to see both promise and the barriers to entry right there. It's, it's a fascinating thing to think about.
1: Yeah. I mean, it causes some strange things sure. also, right? Uh, because one of the things we can see here is that um, some countries that have smaller um, GDP um, and smaller like overall budgets for pharma development and med device development, have simpler regulatory frameworks, and then uh, they get targeted as early adopters for high-tech technologies. It fe- it feels in- unintuitive to think mm. that, that some of these places would get access to latest generation treatment before Europe does. Um, and also, uh, the UK with Brexit also ends up in one of these like sort of right. tricky situations when it comes to market entry. Um, so, two of the places that you would expect to be the um, furthest along, right, the, the the with
0: yeah
1: rich rich uh, geographies uh, um, with people with very high requirements for for medical treatment, ends up being late adopters because of this, and. I think it's a little bit unfortunate. I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that uh, the regulators are working on on simplifying their frameworks, on making good pathways for new products. Yeah. Because I don't think that this, I don't think this current thing is in anyone's best interest. Um, and it also, of course, leaves a lot of money on the t- you know on the table when it comes to um, uh development of cutting edge technologies um because most um jurisdictions invest in products that are intended for that jurisdiction mm-hmm. but if the richest jurisdictions ends up being the latest adopters they're not the ones sponsoring that development um and i i think that's bad for everyone i think that's bad for everyone on this planet
0: yeah it, it speaks to the idea of ethical concerns. Like there's probably all, you're probably surrounded by them, you know, well, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. That's gotta be daunting.
1: Um. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is, but also some of the, the optics of ethics right. has become almost more concerns than the ethics themselves. Oh, yeah. I think that the group I'm working with, I, I think that our company as well as all of the academic institutions I've ever worked with have really high, ethical standards right um, but you have you have to be careful not just about the ethics but the optics of ethics mm-hmm. um, because if you enter into a situation where there's the potential for spin to be introduced by media um, you can be quite certain that it's that's going to happen mm-hmm. and I, I have lived so- through some of that. I have seen some of that in action and it's a very again it's a thing that discourages um innovation it discourages development uh, the ugliest thing in that uh, that I've seen and I've seen it repeatedly is the idea that if you test your product uh, first in say India uh, we we've saw, uh, seen this um when we were in Sweden like criticism begins about testing things in India before we do in Sweden because uh, mm. the way that the spin is put on that right becomes um, you're using poor people or, or exposed people who don't have a better choice and I know that when when this was happening um, that that specific trial was run ran uh, sorry, run through uh, the World, he- uh, World Health Organization site, the largest World Health Organization site in ophthalmology that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a nicer site than I have ever worked at <laughs> myself, and still you have this local, um, this local coverage that puts the spin on it It's like evil Swedish people uh, using poor Indian people, which is. It's entirely devoid of any connection to reality. Um, so having seen that, I've gotten very cautious in in how you how you frame things and where you go. And and, and again, it's very unfortunate that this is how the world works. Um, because we want to bring benefit to people as fast as possible and and in the places where it matters. I also think that that's kind of, that idea that you can't uh, have uh, lower GDP countries be first adopters is also awful because often the need for improvement in treatment, in medical treatment is the greatest there. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, you're walking a uh, tightrope when you're trying to deal with those things and when you're communicating about those things um yeah
0: it speaks to the idea of complexity you know i wish it was as easy as good and evil or good and bad but there's the complexity is just it's 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 probably a lot like creating medical devices it's the complexity of it is mind-blowing you know yeah
1: um medicine is a medicine moves so very fast today uh, but also, it's so very disparate, uh, depending on on where in the world you are. Like, um, some of the some of the coolest medical technologies I've ever seen are in uh, places where you, like honestly, oh, there, there, there is some racism in that. There's some there is some prejudice in that, where people in North America think that we're ahead of the world, ahead of the curve, and then you see these sites. Um, in India or in China uh, or Indonesia, um, and they have resources that are that. It will be ten years until we have them in North America. It's a, it's a little bit ridiculous, I think, and uh, I think people need to be a little bit more open-minded uh, when they're looking at geographies. Uh, I want to point. Out, we we are hitting time now. Yes, I know. I just I love talking
0: to you. So I no say likewise. <laughs> like I, I'm really thankful. Before I let you go though, maybe you could tell people where they can find you and what you have coming up. Absolutely.
1: Um, the best way to connect with me is over LinkedIn. Um, my name should be on here. Um, and the company that I uh, am a founder of is Biomir. I have Eden AI as well. Uh, that one has lower levels of activity right now. We're working on, on restructuring that one. But yeah, connect with me over LinkedIn, send me a message, um, follow uh, Um And yeah, the things that are coming up is really, we're very active in the startup scene in both um, Calgary in Alberta, as well as in Montreal and Sherbrooke in Quebec. Um, we almost always have a representative visiting a, a local startup group called Startup TNT, which is an investment group, but they, they hold socials. So every Thursday, if anyone here is in Alberta, come and come and visit that. Uh, you should be able to find Startup TNT on LinkedIn as well. Uh, they're, they're great people and yeah, we work closely with them, and we're always there. Someone, someone from, from our camp is always there. So if you want to meet us in person, that's, that's where you can find us.
0: Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, please go down to the show notes. Check out everything that they're working on. It's incredible technology. We're really moving into a world that has a lot of promise. And I'm really thankful for your time today. I'm, 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 I'm happy to learn as much as, as is out there. And I really think that the technology is promising. So ladies and gentlemen, go to the show notes. Check everything out. Thank you very much for your time today, Ellen. That's all we got. Ladies and gentlemen, aloha. Thanks so much. Bye. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place.